The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they manage to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. Welcome to the Grim Drive Podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. My name is Jonathan Busfield. I am flying solo today. No no John Cuna. He should be back next time. I'm sure everybody misses John, so shout out to John. Uh, today we're doing a great interview with a, with a dude named Alan Cesaro. Alan is uh, a guy I met, oh man, I want to say about probably 10 years ago now, 10, 9, 10 years ago. Um, we worked together at a place called Youth Build Justice Start in Cambridge, which we might get into today. Alan is an author, journalist, teacher, sports fan, and aficionado. I mean, uh, you're, you're sort of like the most interesting man on the planet kind of thing, right? Like, uh, just does everything. Super talented, super smart. He has written three books. The first one was called This Is Not a Frank Ocean Cover Album, and that is a, a book of poems. The second one is uh, a book of poems as well called Pinata Theory, which I have right here. I encourage everyone to pick all three of these books up. Um, you know, this is the one I've read so far, and it's it's fantastic. The third book is called Notes from the Eastern Span of the Bay Bridge, also a book of poetry as well. Um, so Alan has written those three books. Um, he's done a lot of other, uh, you know, journalistic writing as well. And he also helped create and helps run, I believe we'll get into this today, a, a basketball and culture blog called Headfake, which is on Medium, um, which we'll get into as well. So Alan... You do a lot. You're obviously super talented. Uh, I know you're extremely uh, generous with with your how you dedicate your time to helping people and helping others. Especially, you've always been passionate from a teaching perspective. Uh, but I want to just get a little bit of information from you on just your path in general. It's a really cool background. So you grew up in the in the Bay Area and came to Massachusetts and then went back and have done a lot of traveling in between. So I'll let you kind of start. How would you describe your path overall? Well, I appreciate it. Um, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Awesome. Good to see you, dude. Um, yeah, so I grew up in the Bay Area. My parents were both Mexican immigrants, um, so I'm first generation. And, um, you know, high school was pretty rough academically, but great socially. <laughs> um, I was flunking classes and taking summer school every year. And, um, you know, what, two of the highlights for me that sort of remind me of that time period was in eighth grade. <clears throat> I wasn't allowed to graduate because my grades were so bad. And I remember going through my dad's garage one day when I was older and uh, finding a report card where I had um, F's in every single, like literally F, 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 all the way down every single academic class, not exaggerating. There was like six F's on that report card. And mm -hmm. then at the bottom I had a C and I was like, huh, what did I get this C? And it was PE. And I was like, dang, like how disengaged was I as a young man that I got a C? Cause I love sports. Like I'm a yeah. skinny dude. I was like one fast in my grades and all that played soccer, whatever. And it was, it just, it was kind of a, a sign to me that um, I was really immature, right? Like, how do you get a and e Like, you just have to run. And I loved running, right? So I think it was a, I was just really checked out, right? And when I was a senior in high school, I was taking freshman classes. 
And I think that's when I kind of had like a realization that um, I, I'm, I'm wasting my opportunities. I'm an American, I'm a U.S. citizen. And a lot of my friends were, were undocumented growing up. Mm -hmm. So I didn't understand what all of that meant till I got a little bit older. You know, and the fact that my parents moved from another country to, to give me this opportunity. And here I am freaking just cutting class and doing dumb shit. So um, I ended up going to community college. And that's really when I started to like tap into myself and, and sort of realize that, you know, it's not that I was a dumb kid, but I just didn't really have a connection to learning in, in an institutional sense. Um, cause I always felt like I was creative and, and I was doing like graffiti and I was into rap and I was like freestyling and I knew I had the ability to express myself, but I never learned how, to, I never really had anybody teach me how to transfer that into again, like an academic institutional mm -hmm. formal set. And, and I started realizing because a lot, I, a lot of my friends were, were like me, right. And we were all kind of, some of them dropped out and, and a lot of them just went into, you know, nine to five working at grocery stores or uh, being waiters at the local restaurant. And I was kind of like, I think all of us could be doing more if we, if we just had more of that guidance. So that's kind of where I started going into like academia, mm -hmm. um, around like age 20, maybe. And I just kind of was like laser beam focused, kind of like, a like a Carmelo Anthony on the court. You know what I mean? Like yep. that's how I felt going to the classroom every day. I was like, I'm going to grind. I'm sitting in front of the class. I'm asking questions. I'm paying attention. I'm giving everything I have, like, like kind of that hustle mentality and it just paid off, dude. So, you know, it's been, been about 15 years since I made that choice to kind of really give it everything every day. And yeah, I ended up transferring to UC Berkeley, got my, got my master's a few years later um, at the university of San Francisco. And, and I became a high school teacher for 10 years, mm -hmm. which I was doing again, mainly out of that desire to reach young men of color in particular. Yep who I knew had knowledge and, and sort of the intellectual ability to express themselves, but they maybe just never had that, that opportunity to, to, to bring it into the academic setting. Right. So that's kind of what I do. Um, and now I, I, I left high school teaching um, about two years ago um, so that I could fully pursue writing, which kind of was like, you know, my world, my classroom becomes like my world essentially. So instead of reaching the 30 kids in front of me, you know, in the morning, um, I'm writing books and doing journalism um, with newspapers in the Bay Area so that I can reach more people, hopefully. Um, and that's just kind of been my mission is just to uplift others, give visibility to marginalized communities and um, have a good time, you know, and connect with people. No, that's fantastic, man. I mean, I think your story and how you describe that, it just makes me, you know, rethink. I mean, John and I talk about this quite a lot. I mean, we see it the most, I think in our work, we see it the most with young, we work most with young guys. We see it with young guys with ADHD in particular, where they, they are so intelligent and so talented and so creative. And yet that, that diagnosis or how their teachers and or parents treat them as a result or whatever leads to them not believing in their potential at all. And it's just, you, you, you look around, you see so many talented people, smart, intelligent, talented people that either don't get a chance to really, you know, have that shine, or at least they don't right away. Maybe it hits them at a different period in life uh, later on, hopefully. And you just, how often that happens is unbelievable to me. And so I wonder, um, you know, we don't have to get into this if it's too personal, but when you look back at, at 
that point in your life when you were a little bit younger, maybe in middle school or that kind of thing. What do you think was the main thing that prevented you from clicking in earlier? Yeah, that's a good question, dude. Um, so one of the details I didn't share um, is I grew up in a single parent home. So, um, you know, and it was actually my dad, which I think is kind of like a it's atypical like upside down narrative, yep. right? <laughs> Uh, my mom was in my life. I don't want to say like, like my mom, you know, it's not like I never saw her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, it, when I went home every day, my, my day-to-day living was just my dad and he never remarried. He never had a girlfriend. So I, I like to mention that because I feel like I had this kind of weirdly unique upbringing, especially as a Mexican American where, you know, a lot of my, all of my Mexican friends, like their moms were in the kitchen cooking for like five kids and, you know, kind of traditional. Mm-hmm. I would go home every day and it, there was my dad was at work. So literally from like fifth grade to 12th grade, I, it was unsupervised time. I never had a babysitter. There was never we didn't have family here because my parents immigrated and they were the only ones that came at that mm-hmm. time. So, you know, I had my older brother and me and my older brother, um, you know, was also kind of checked out of school. So it, it was easy to just go home, play video games at first and then that becomes going out with your friends and hanging out in the neighborhood. And then that becomes like smoking and, you know, drinking a little bit and not, not doing anything too crazy, just like juvenile suburban stuff at yeah. that time. Right. But I, I would say it was a lot of unsupervised time and nobody like my dad never came home and asked like, you know, let me see your homework or how was school or it was just like, Hey, you want to watch the game? <laughs> it's like, hell yeah, I want to watch the game. Right. And that's also how I, <laughs> became a big part of my life because there was no women in the household so not to say women don't watch sports but it's it's definitely like a male thing to be like hey let's watch the game and my dad has has a beer and and you know what i mean we're watching boxing together and Mm -hmm. it was an easy way for the three of us men to connect every day and i think that was the main thing that kept us together so there was so much focus on like sports and and eventually like rap and, and stuff like that but there was literally like no sense of academic encouragement um on a day-to-day basis right because i did have people in my life that eventually encouraged me um like you know my sister has a different dad and and her grandpa was very academic and and as i got older i spent started spending more time with him but that wasn't like an everyday thing so i just want to credit that work people in my life but i just didn't have access to them regularly mm-hmm. um especially early on like you were asking yeah yeah, and it, when you say unsupervised, you know, another thing that comes to mind is is sort of like a disconnection, right? If if I think we need human connection so badly at, at all facets in our life, particularly when we're young, and I think young people, if if we if we're unsupervised or if we don't feel that connection, we're probably going to go seek it and, and get it where where we can. And a lot of times, that's with the group of friends that's going to you know be loyal to us, the group of friends that's going to be consistent and spending time with us, things like that. So I think that that definitely comes to mind. I know for me. I have a bit of a, a similar overlap with the uh, with the father sports connection. I, my parents divorced when I was nine, and it was very much this kind of uh, dichotomy between households. Where it's like, you know, my mother was like the disciplinarian, uh, hey, focus on school kind of thing. My father was the the sports weekend dad. So it was like kind of like yeah. not a whole lot of structure. Let's wow. just watch the game and kind of zone out to that together, kind of thing. Which was, fa- I mean, it's fantastic in its own way. Yeah. It makes it hard to stay motivated when it comes to like academic goals and things like that. Yeah. Um. So that's that's definitely when you bring that up. I think uh, it's interesting how that can happen in terms of you know if, if someone's not pushing you towards that stuff, you're you're gonna get to it 
at a at a later age when you start to when it starts to click for you you know i think it sounds like for you when was that was that like in high school or was that around 20 at the very end of high school okay. my, my senior year i remember just kind of like towards the end realizing when my counselor was like you you will not graduate unless you pass your eight classes that i had to take because i was you know like so behind on credits and that's kind of when i was like you know what i should probably be putting in more effort yeah yeah that that's great so when it comes to writing you know, I know you've written three books um, and they're all, you know, you've done a lot of journalism and you've done poetry. Um, what, how did you get into poetry and what did that, how did it go from getting into it to then really becoming a published author? Yeah, I appreciate you, you asking that. Um, so I, as I mentioned, I, I, I was always into graffiti growing up um, and I was a very like artistic kid, I guess you could say, like in, in high school, um, in art class, which I failed, <laughs> I got an F in this damn class, but um, I was really good at drawing. And I remember, I, I remember that because a lot of kids would ask me like, hey, can you draw this for me? Hey, um, I'll pay you. Can I, can I buy that thing you just made in art class, right? So I always had a sense of like um, expression and color. And I was always into like vibrancy. Um, and I think because I grew up in that environment, like I'm mentioning, where it was a lot of there was a lot of shaming in my social circle for being academic or being or being like into school was like for sure um you know like not cool or whatever right yep. so you would get picked made fun of so that's just how i grew up so i i started I, I think i sort of like subconsciously transferred my desire to to express myself into graffiti early on and then later that became rapping and um you know like i was like a uh, it sounds hella corny, but I was like freestyle, you know, like I'd be at parties and like I'd go to the back and, and we'd just stand in a circle and take turns rapping over beat kind of stuff. Right. I wasn't I wasn't trying to be like a big rapper or anything, but um, I just always loved words, language. Yeah. And then poetry was an, it's like the cousin to that in my in my eyes. And, you know, so it wasn't it wasn't a big leap to go from I'm writing raps down for fun to let me try writing a poem in my community college class now and submitting that to my teacher and see what they think. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, I, I credit hip hop basically is what I'm saying, where that was always a big part of my life. Um, since I, I want to say since like fourth grade, I was listening to Tupac and, you know, I, I'm a West coast kid. So it was always like Snoop Dogg and E40 and too short. And it was always on the radio. And again, because we were unsupervised, I was listening to like, the Machiavelli album with my older brother and his friends when I was like in fifth grade, right? Which is like super explicit as hell. Um, but I just kind of had that pride and that sense of like, I want to, I want to tell people where I'm from, which is basically what rappers do mm -hmm. sometimes in a much more aggressive or, or yep. overt way. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I wanted to do that, but in a more sort of like softer and, and I guess holy way, which is where the books came from. That's amazing. Yeah. So that um, I, I was fascinated by naming things kind of always has interested me. And so you've got some amazing names when it comes to everything you do. Right. So it, uh, all three books, you know, this is not a Frank Ocean cover album is the first one. Second one is Pinata Theory. Third one is Notes from the Eastern Span of the Bay Bridge. How do you brainstorm and come up with names uh, and, and really um, have them be standalone, unique, awesome names, but also tie into what you're doing? It's pretty um, hard to, to like, I guess, there's no system to it. Um, I think a lot of poetry, I always tell my students, operates on, on association and intuition. It's, it's an art form of feeling, of trusting, 
Um, whereas I tell them often like essay writing or often fiction and prose and nonfiction, right? Like it, it operates more on logic and mm -hmm. structure. You have paragraphs, you have topic sentences, you have your thesis, everything kind of connects. It's very formalized, very systematized. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying poetry is a much more fluid thing, right? And it's, um, I sort of move through the world and just sort of listen and observe and, and trust my intuition and, and what I'm feeling and, and, and put together images with, with vibrations kind of, right? It sounds hella hippie, but no. that's kind of how I do approach the craft of poetry yeah. where I don't necessarily have an agenda, right? Like if I'm going to write an essay for um, the San Francisco Gate um, and do a sports article, which I've done, I have to have a clear, you know, hey, editor, this is what I'm doing. This is my topic. This is my do-do-do-do. Yep. But the poem, I'm like, I'm feeling broken today. That's a feeling. How do I convey that sense of brokenness so that the reader can feel that? Mm -hmm. And just to give you an example, Piñata Theory, that title came from the whole concept of a piñata is that it's it's gathered from these warehouse scraps that are sort of leftover wires and paper mache and colors, and then they're kind of slapped together with cardboard, right? It becomes like this carcass of sorts. And then we hang that up and then we bash it publicly and we cheer on while this bashing is happening, which is kind of like a somewhat violent thing. And then we cheer once it breaks and we all grab what spills, right? And I was thinking about that metaphor and that concept a lot. And I was doing research on like the history of the piñata and where does it come from? And um, I, I sort of wanted to use that as a metaphor uh, for being a Mexican-American kid and, and the way that I feel like I grew up and many people like me grew up where you know, society kind of, you know, like batters us down, you know, and this, this can apply to anybody. You don't have to be a Mexican American male to, to affiliate with mm -hmm. this feeling, but that that's the feeling and that concept. Like, how do you express that idea that you feel like you've been built to be destroyed almost? Um, and, and of course I was thinking a lot about at the time, like police brutality and, you know, black Americans getting gunned down by police officers and, gang violence and all these other things that are just kind of like swirling around you mm -hmm. um, or me at the time. Um, and Inyata theory just felt like something that encapsulated, even if that message doesn't come across directly, I think it conveys to some level like this subconscious feeling of, of destruction, right? But also of beauty and how much like color comes out of our communities and how much life and vibrancy comes out of our, our communities. Um, although that they can feel destructive at times. So yeah, it, it was sort of like all of that. And then like, how can I, yeah, how do you title that? Right. And, and it, it's a, it's, there's a lot of, it doesn't happen easily. Um, yeah. It takes time. I have a list, a bullet point list of like, here are the potential titles. And again, it, it, you just trust that you'll get to that point eventually. And you just cycle through everything. And once it comes, you kind of feel like, you know, when it's right and you just go with it. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That's that's similar to, you know, how Riser and Tread and even the Grim Drive podcast kind of came about in terms of naming. I would say the Grim Drive podcast part part of one factor was also that like the first twenty you come up with are already taken by other podcasts. So that yeah. that kinda <laughs> you know, kicks your legs out from under you a little bit. But um so that's really awesome that those names came that way. I mean, from from a poetry perspective, I I am someone who in terms of my natural abilities tends to gravitate more towards the the literal and the straightforward path of writing that you described on the other side of the coin whether it's uh fiction non or i should say non-fiction prose historical things so i struggle a little bit when it comes to poetry i don't think i think it's a muscle i'm trying to like expand you know and, and work a little bit better do you have any 
suggestions for people also trying to do that in terms of where to start, how to get into it, how to consume it. I heard someone say the other day that listening to someone, listening to the poet or any person um, say the poetry out loud, it sometimes is more helpful than reading it. Um, so what, what suggestions would you give to people who are not as good when it comes to poetry or trying to get into it? Yeah, definitely. So I wasn't good at poetry. I mean, I still question, you know, if I'm, if I am at times, but three um, books later, <laughs> um, no, but it, it's a constant, it's constant growth. And like, first of all, the commitment, it's, it always starts with the commitment. Like I want to get good at this. Mm -hmm. um, once you make that commitment, then it becomes, um, you know, watching. And, and one of the things I've learned, whether it's graffiti rap or, or poetry, or even teaching is like, learn from the best, um, you know, playing basketball, I'm going to watch videos, I'm going to um, study the players that I like, the players I want to be like, the ones you want to emulate, you, you, you mimic them, right? And again, I'm going back to graffiti for a second. But when I first started doing graffiti, I would just like literally trace and copy graffiti that other guys were doing in my neighborhood or in the Bay Area or online. Um, and that's and, and it, it's sort of like you have to train your muscles and sort of um, so, so what that looks like in poetry is reading a shitload of poetry from from poets that you like and that you identify with and that you've selected, right? Not what your teacher is telling you to read and, and you don't really feel a connection, but, you know, I was going online and reading like, all right, who are some Mexican-American poets um, from California, from the Bay Area? And then I would read their work and then I would sort of study like, what do I like about this? What are they talking about? How does it apply to me? How, what can I contribute to what they've said? And maybe look for the blind spots that they haven't talked about and, and fill that in from my own personal perspective. Um, so basically, it's like a lot of reading, dude. A lot of, you know, I, I obviously went to grad school because I was at that level. But, you know, you don't have to go to grad school for it, obviously. But um, it's sort of like there's tiers to it, right? And that was kind of like the top tier for me where I was like, I want to be at that level of studying this crap. But yeah, just started with picking up a book and and being committed to to getting better at it and, and just giving a lot of time to that practice. I think that's a great way to describe it. It sort of sounds like when the way you talk about it, it, it very much becomes clear that your approach to getting good at that was very egoless, right? And I think when people try to get good at something, they're often ego-driven. And I think it mm -hmm. gets in their way because they're they're trying to get good in order to accept themselves or feel like they're good enough. And I think... That can be a driving force, but it often leads to going the wrong direction in something or, or attacking it from the wrong angle. Um, I think you see this with people all the time when they're trying to get good at something. They, they Instead of learning from the best first right, and trying to consume, all right, who's done it? Who's done it well? How have they done it well? How does that jive with me and who I am as a person? And then you sort of meander into creating your own style after that. I think most people, when they're ego-driven especially, they tend to think nope from the from the get-go i have to be different than everybody else how do, how do i create something completely new i don't even want to look at what anyone else has done i just want to to be innovative and, and that kind of thing and i don't think that's the right way to go about it in my opinion i feel like you do have to learn you know the the historical angle of what's come before you and who's done it well first and then see what that means to you and, and how um how that dovetails with what you want your own style to be and it sounds like that's that's how you do that i think it reminds me of art you know some famous artists where i think you know, one thing I learned when I started to, to get into art in high school and I traveled and went to Europe and, and went to museums and things like that was that when you see, you know, artists that kind of go outside the box a little bit, maybe, you know, they do abstract art or cubism or things like that. When I was younger, the first thing that came to my head is like, 
why are they doing that? Like, how, like I bet you anything they can't do, they can't draw something sort of verbatim. And like to, and what you don't realize is all those artists, like they get, they get trained and they work their way through being able to draw accurately, like as good as anyone in the world. And then they expand uh, into being able to do their own style. And you don't always, I think people learning about art don't always see that because they only look at the finished product and they don't see all the steps along the way. Um, so that's really cool, man. So when it comes to head fake, this, this basketball and culture blog on medium, I'm just fascinated by it because I think I have a feeling like it's just scratching the surface of what it can do. I'm, I'm willing to bet you've kind of sniffed that too, but how did it start and what is kind of the overall mission of head fake? Um, so head fake is it's yeah, like a culture NBA basketball, WNBA international blog. Um, and essentially some of what I try to do in my work is, like I said, I, I try to identify blind spots. Like, what is something cool that I think could reach people, but I don't see happening as enough or at all? So this artist in Spain um, hit me up a few years ago on Twitter, and he, he, he actually was a fan of my poetry. And he was like, hey, I like your poetry, et cetera, et cetera. You know, social media being used in a good, in a good way, right? <laughs> Um, and we connected. It turns out he was, he was a huge sports fanatic and he was an illustrator who was pretty dope. His name is um, Antonio Lozada and he goes by at Chapulana. And him and I were just kind of like, you know, chopping it up on, on in the DMs. And I was like, hey, dude, I, I, want, I was thinking about writing this this essay about how, how much I miss Kevin Durant on the Warriors. But how much at first I hated Kevin Durant when he joined the Warriors. I'm a lifelong real Warriors fan mm -hmm. from day one the 90s kind of thing right organic um, not a bandwagon so i was like i, I want to write that essay um do you think you could draw something for it he's like sure so he drew this dope illustration of kd <clears throat> with like all these colors <clears throat> excuse me it was like kind of like cartoony and it was like dang this is you know professional level so i wrote that we banged it out published it on my account and i was like hey i'm thinking about writing a brandon jennings um and how he was the first, you know, American teenager to play overseas in Italy. Do you think you could illustrate it? And he was like, sure. It kind of went like that for about four or five essays where I just kept coming up with, mind you, this is during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I had that free time and I was looking for new ways to kind of stay productive. And the NBA had come to a grinding halt and I was like devastated because that's my main sport that I watch. Yep. I was like, how can I re-engage with the sport and community that I love? Let me write about Charles Barkley being on the 96 Rockets and trying to create what I was arguing is like the first modern super team that failed egregiously. Um, and maybe Antonio can illustrate that essay. And he did, right? So that that's kind of where it came from. Fast forward a few, a few months later, it got pretty good reception and it was getting, um, you know, attention from different writers and, and journalists and um basically i was like why don't this is, again going back to eagle listing i was like this isn't just about me and antonio i don't want it to be about me and antonio what if i start inviting other writers so i started hitting up other journalists that i know and other random people that i didn't even know on on social media but i like their content and i was like hey you're a mexican-american woman from san antonio and you post a lot about the spurs i've never seen a story about a Mexican-American woman and her being an NBA fan. Can you write an essay about why you love the Spurs? And in this case, this woman was like, sure. She wrote it. We illustrated it. The Spurs ended up reading it, framing it, sending her a, a, a photograph um, frame of that and giving her free tickets 
and and giving her like a signed basketball and shit. Wow. Uh, and that also happened when I, I recruited this young kid from East LA who was a Clippers fan. And I was like, dude, I grew up in the, in California. You know how many Clippers fans I know that are Mexican American? Literally zero. Cause all of them fucking like the Lakers. <laughs> and I met this kid and I was like, dude, like, can you please write about how you became a Clippers fan from East LA? He wrote it. We illustrated it. The Clippers found it. They read it. They visited his house and sent their game announcer and cheerleaders. And he took photos with them, right? And to me, those are just a few examples of what Head Fake is about. It's about promoting these voices. Like how many times you read about a kid from East LA who, who's writing about basketball and, and being having like immigrant parents and, and selling t-shirts on the street, like in the flea markets, right? Um, so I try to be intentional in who I curate and why I curate them when I can, because it's not easy to find people like that, right? Yeah. Some people don't want to tell those stories or... You know, those people aren't watching the NBA religiously. So that's basically what we're about, dude. It's just about promoting visibility and amplifying communities and voices that I think aren't always traditionally included in sports writing. Um, you know, it's not really about stats. It's, it's typically about the stories of why we love this sport and how it makes us feel more human and connected to each other with cool art. <laughs> no, the art is unbelievable. I think that's one of the things that stood out the most is just how amazing it is. And also just by itself amazing but also how it it uh blends so well with the stories that you guys are creating i feel like it's like this really whole approach to the article that where the art adds to you know it it, it bumps it up a level in terms of um you know the quality of when you're consuming you know that content it it seems to mean more and it seems to hit home in a better way with the art accompanying it if that makes sense um For sure. so this is really cool i'm I'm so excited to see where that goes because again i feel like you're just scratching the surface of something really cool i think sports especially with analytics and other things it, it tends to be a lot based you know most stuff is about the numbers and, and john and i've talked a lot about how the more we can humanize athletes and the more we can tell um real stories about them or real stories about fans i think it's it's best for everybody because it balances things out a little bit um so that brings me to my final question for you today Alan, it's one I've been pondering for a while, but what do you think about the question, like, is momentum in sports real? Where, where do you stand on that? Dang, that's hard. Oof. I mean, I, I, I'm a big believer in, like, um, like the sort of charges of energy that are given off of people, right? And, and when somebody has, like, bad vibes, I travel the world a lot, right? And, and I, I know when I'm in a place that has um, – like negative energy or somebody is projecting some sort of negativity towards you or is looking at you a certain way mm -hmm. or viewing you a certain way and or, or is treating you a certain way even worse and and how that makes you feel and how that sort of changes the way that you operate in that moment in that space right versus if there's a positive energy being emitted and somebody's extremely welcoming and you feel very at home and you feel safe and you feel comfortable and you're opening up more right and you're more yourself um, so I guess that's my way of saying that I, I, I do, I have experienced at least myself when I'm in a space that makes me feel a certain way and, and makes me feel like I'm capable of doing something or not. Um, and I've never really played super competitive sports. I, you know, I've played plenty of sports with, you know, on the streets and stuff, mm -hmm. but I do feel like there's been times where you, you have that feeling that you can do more, but it ultimately does boil down to like talent. You know what I mean? Cause I could be like, like I could feel the momentum that my buddy just hit a, a three pointer in a pickup game. Um, but if the guy that I'm playing against is six, seven and I'm six feet, 
momentum can only take me so far. You know, I, what am I going to do? And that, that actually yeah. happened recently. And we, we ended up losing a hella close game, three-on-three three three pickup in Oakland. And the guy defending me and that I was defending was literally, I, I want to say he was like 6'8". Like, he was wearing like a Wisconsin basketball, you know, shirt. And I'm like, you know, I'm I'm barely six feet with, yeah. with my KDs on. So <laughs> it, it was, you know, momentum can only take me so far. But I I was trying my hardest because I was with my boys and we we, we made a little run, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I guess that feeling does exist, but it do, that doesn't mean it always translates into victory, I guess is what I'm saying. Very good point. Very good point. I and mean, even, you know, so it's a nuanced thing that can help in, in, in small amounts and different, uh, if, if across the board talent is equalized or things like For that. Sure. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely something that's hard to, hard to quantify as well either way. Right. right? Sure. Yeah. What's your, what's your thought on that? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, um, we had an episode about it on the podcast where we talked about it a little bit. I feel like it's, to me, I, uh, I know there's a lot of research out there that talks about how emotion is contagious. And I think um, that speaks to what you mentioned about knowing when you're in an environment where things are dangerous or you are not welcome for some reason. Um, I think you can pick up on the, the emotional, uh, some people do it better than others, but you can pick on pick up on the emotional vibe in a room in terms of whether it's a, a place you're you're welcome or um, whether people are happy in general, uh, regardless of, of of how you blend with them, and I think that that translates and that rubs off on people. And I think in a sports atmosphere, you know, whether um, you whether it has to do with the individual people on the team, how they jive together, um, how the coaching vibes with that, um, I think there are definitely little things that that tend to translate to momentum being a thing i just don't know if numbers can ever really pick up on it and that's that's the tough part is that the i think the analytics people will say it's not a real thing um yeah. i would say that it is but i'm not sure how to quantify it in a way that you can actually prove it or uh, even be able to track it in any kind of way yeah or, or replicate it I'm, I'm actually thinking of like jeremy lynn and how you know lynn sanity like to me that was a good example of like this dude was feeling it right and the city was behind him and his team was behind him and, but it only lasted so long, right? And right. now he's out of the FDA, unfortunately. Um, and it's not like it translated into him like leveling up to this permanent superstar, right? It was just like a couple weeks of a, of a great run and, and it fizzled out, right? Um, right. So I, I, I guess those are moments where it happens, but it's just not, yeah, it's not quantifiable. It's not replicate. It's not easy to replicate. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so this has been amazing, man. I really appreciate you coming on here. I mean, you're, you're someone who I remember you know, working with you at youth, youth Build Just Start, you remember certain people that stand out. You're someone who I always, was always like, just really impressed by you. And as, as a, you know, obviously in terms of your intelligence and talent, but just you as a person, you know, I think the, the first thing that came through about you, Alan, was always that you're just genuine. You know, what you see is what you get. You're a real person. I think it's hard to find those people. So I really appreciate you coming on here. Um, hopefully we'll do another a podcast episode at some point. Um, or maybe we can collaborate when, when it comes to, to head fake. I can come on there and try to try to write something if you think there's yeah. a there's a window into that. Definitely, bro. I appreciate it, man. And same to you, dude. It was always nice, you know, having you by my side and in youth build days, and just seeing your 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 continual growth and and what you're doing with this. It's hella cool to see. Uh, man, my dude's official out here with the mic and the, the headphones. <laughs> That's all, so. Dimitri. It's all, we got the podcast <laughs> producer, the Go Network. They handle everything. It. It makes an amateur look look like they may know what they're doing occasionally, <laughs> which probably isn't the case. But no, nah, it was good, man. I enjoyed the compliment. <laughs> you're doing good work. You know what I mean? Like uh, with not only this in the real world, and I think that's what matters the most. Like you know, there's always the versions we project. 
um, you know, through, through our articles, through, through our podcast, whatever. But I've been with you in the trenches and I know that you're like really there helping the students in need with me. And, and you know, a lot of people talk to talk, but when, when the cameras are off, they're, they're not really contributing to anything. You know what I mean? Yep. So um, same to you, man. I appreciate you saying that, man. So this, we want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of the Grim Drive podcast, for this uh, interview with Alan Cesaro. We're going to put a link uh, to everything we talked about, including his books, uh, in the show notes as well. So again, thank you to everyone for listening, and we'll be back next week.